golly, I'll tell you what, this is another one of those weeks. I mean, maybe this is just the regular for me, I don't know, that it just like, uh, like, like I was praying about this message and God actually said to me, this is one of the most important messages I've ever had you deliver. To which I was like, oh no. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I didn't get the sense that like it was because what I'm going to have to say begins and ends here, but maybe it's just a little seed planted for somebody, and from there it's going to blossom and grow as more dialogue happens, as more considered. So I don't, I don't look at sermons as like beginning and ending at giving the message and their influence. Hopefully, it goes much beyond just that. So, and the other thing that happens 90% of the time when I have a sense like that is that what I thought the point was turns out wasn't the point whatsoever as far as God was concerned. So, anyway, here we go. Let's pray. Father, praise you, thank you, thank you for the letter to the Hebrews, thank you for dumb Hebrew jokes, but thank you for the wonderful people that come up with them, um, thank you for, for the peace that you bring into our lives, peace that is bigger than any circumstance that we go through, peace that is beyond what we experience just in this world. Um, peace that we know will fully come one day when you come again, Lord God. So, praise you. Thank you. Open our hearts and our minds and our ears to uh, be attentive to the things that you have to say to us tonight. Amen. I have a question. I'm going to start off with a question. Some people say that's the worst way to start off a sermon, but nonetheless, here we go. i got a question for you. Is your life... Think of your life right now. Just think of everything in your life. Is it better off for being a follower of Jesus? And I just want you to think. Don't just keep it to yourself. Just think. Just think. I, I, there's a particular reason I don't want anybody to say anything. Now, you probably already have done this. How? How is your life better off for you being a follower of Jesus? Now, based on the same criteria you just measured your life by, about how your life has become better for being a follower of Jesus, how about historically speaking, not just for you, but maybe for people throughout all history that you would ask that same question of? Are other Christians in history, how would you look at their lives and say they were better off for having been a follower of Jesus? Are other Christians' lives better off for being followers of Jesus? Take for consideration Peter, or James, or John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. How about those guys? How about those 11 guys? Were their lives better off for being followers of Jesus? How? If they were better off, how were they better off? Because you know every one of those guys was killed. Saul became Paul. How about his life? Stephen, stoned. Polycarp, if you don't know who Polycarp is, he was taught in the way of Jesus through the apostolic succession of John. He was killed as well, burned at the stake. Or guys like Jonathan Huss, pre-reformers. Yeah, Sean Huss, right? Close, right? Whose name means goose, by the way. John, Jonathan Huss, Jonathan Goose. 
He was burned at the stake as a pre-reformer. Followers of Jesus, people that are passionate about following Jesus, all were killed. If you were to answer that their lives were better off for following Jesus, by what criteria would you be able to say that? Or what about other Christians worldwide today? How about people suffering immensely today for their faith in Christ, for having given their lives to Christ? Would you say their lives are better off? I'm following Jesus, I'm loving Jesus now, and I'm losing everything that I have, maybe my life even. Are their lives better off? Does considering this require, does considering that their lives truly are better off, does it require you to reassess in any way the answer to the question that applies to your life? Is your life better off for being a follower of Jesus? Is the way in which you answered that originally, does it need some tweaking in light of considering how those people that we just talked about, lives are better off? For following Jesus. Hmm. I, I certainly know that that's something I constantly have to return to myself. Constantly have to return to it myself. Because I start to define the benefits of being a follower of Jesus in the wrong ways. So these are some of the things that I want to address today as we continue in our study of the New Testament book we call the letter to the Hebrews. I want to run through real quick what we talked about in the three weeks prior. The first one was a lot of background information about the recipients and that it's a letter and who the author was and all of this kind of information that some people are just like, whatever, let's get past that. And so we're past that, so we're good, right? The second week, we were talking about how Jesus is the exact impression, the impress of God. The exact impress of God's being. That Jesus is that. Jesus reveals to us exactly what the Father is like, what the Father looks like, what God's being is like. Last week we talked about, already let it, we talked about it again briefly for communion. Jesus is our expiation for sin. He deals with sin, defeating death, interestingly enough, by dying. He defeats death. By dying, and anybody that stands in his way, he says, Get behind me, Satan! He dies on our behalf and makes a way through death itself. So, in those first weeks, we covered like three verses. <laughs> so, we are going to cover a bit more territory tonight. I don't want to, to be quite honest with you. I want to cover like four more verses, or maybe three more verses, but... but uh, we would be here forever, so we're actually covering 1, 4 through 2, 18. That's quite a big chunk for me at one time, right? Yeah, I know, we're doing great. Um, so I'm going to read that for us. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, that's cool. If not, it'll be on the screen. It's a pretty long, pretty big section, so uh, let's get started. So... He became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, 
he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. I already just want to stop and just preach the rest of the night just on that much. But anyway, he also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how, we will, es how will we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit, Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. Again, he says, here I am. And the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this re reason he, has, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become mer a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Maybe you see after reading that why we could really kind of live right there. Like, that's a lot. That's a lot that's going on. A lot of theology, a lot of history. Just, it's dense. There's a lot going on there. And for those of us who are dense ourselves, we need to really spend a lot of time letting God de-densify us. What is that? That's not in my notes. So, he starts off, the writer, of, or it could be a she, right? Starts off talking about angels. I wrote a whole message, actually, last week talking about just angels. And the question was, is in order to be saved, do you have to believe in angels? Hmm. Anyway, 
kind of like, do you have to believe in a young earth in order to be saved? Anyway, we're going to leave that message alone, although we would like, I would love to talk about that with you at some point in your, uh, in your journey. So, but Jesus is talked about as superior to angels. It's like painstakingly talked about that he is superior to angels. He gives a bunch of reasons that Jesus, the word, the son, is superior to angels. He starts off, well, his name is greater than an angel. Do you know what angel means? Any Messenger. Yeah, an angel is a messenger. A messenger is somebody who is given a message to bring, right? That means that the one who gave the message is greater than the messenger. But Jesus isn't a messenger. He's a son. In supporting this claim, there's a couple of texts that are quoted. Psalm 2.7 and 2 Samuel 7.14. We're not, I tell you what, we can't go into every one of these details at this point. But nonetheless, his name is greater. He's called son. Verse 6 points out that angels worship him. He's definitely greater than angels because angels worship him. He's not worshiping angels. Angels aren't just saying, hey, buddy, what's going on? Nice to meet you, Jesus. They're worshiping him. We talked about what worship means a while back. It means like you fall face down and kiss the ground before the one you're worshiping. The angels do that before Jesus, before the Son. Verses 7 through 12 talk about how angels, quoting Psalm 45, 6, angels are winds. They like blow through. And flames. They like burn for a while until whatever was burning is burned up. Right? But the sun, he's not a wind and he's not a flame. He's eternal. Psalm 45, 6, your throne will last forever. And Psalm 102, 27, but you remain the same and your years will never end. So, this is not the case with the angels. The angels are like winds and flames. Jesus is eternal. And then, of course, the earth is his footstool. Does anybody have a footstool at their home? Yeah. What is it like to put your feet on the footstool? What's that? <laughs> you have dominion over everything under there. Get under there. <laughs> Noah, go under the footstool. It's also known as an ottoman. The earth is his ottoman. Maybe that would actually be better for us capturing the image. Because we have ottomans or footstools that are created and made. They're tiny, they're little, right? And they're just like furniture. And we put them in front of chairs and we kick our feet up on them. But the earth is the sun's footstool. The earth. Goodness gracious, he's like sitting on Jupiter, kicking his feet up on earth, right? I mean, we would be foolish to think that was literal, but what, right? We'd be very foolish, although some people will try and read it that way. But what does that communicate? Like, everything is under his feet, everything is under his dominion, everything is, is beneath him. But not necessarily in the sense of, oh, you're beneath me, we'll get to that in a minute. But nonetheless, everything is under his power, under his authority. Everything. And it's everything under the earth. So why all this talk of Jesus' superiority to angels? Oh, back up for a second. 
That includes angels. It includes angels that are under Jesus' feet. So then, why all this talk of Jesus' superiority to angels? Um, we could talk about this all night, but I'll put it this way. The recipients of this letter, while they were still embracing Jesus as son in some capacity, they for some reason had come to consider his words either as less than or no more authoritative than God's messengers, than God's angels. For whatever reason, they had decided that Jesus, whatever he had to say, really wasn't any more authoritative or important than the messengers that God had sent prior to Jesus. They had started going back and reflecting on some things that angels apparently had said to them and thought, you know what, I think I'm going to go with that instead. That sounds easier. That sounds better. I like the angels talk, not so much. Jesus, that, 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 that doesn't make any sense to me. Maybe it's, maybe it's just simply that it was easier. Or maybe it's that following Jesus was just simply immensely hard and they were looking anywhere to find a message that allowed them to have an easier life. Um... Why would they do that? Well, maybe I've already let the cat out of the bag, but there's a few reasons that I think, in addition to the difficulty they might have been going through in their lives at that time, but there's another reason. Um, Jesus was a man. Could a man be more superior to an angel? Like, what happens when people have an angel appear to them in Scripture? Anybody think? Yeah, they're like, whoa! Goodness gracious, are you kidding me? Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's quite a terrifying experience, I would imagine, right? I've never had an encounter with an angel myself. But what about Jesus? He came meek and humble and gentle and kind. When people see him, they don't fall down immediately. There's a couple of occasions where people do. There's some occasions where demons shriek. But the average person just doesn't fall down. He was kind. He was a man. And not just was he a man, but he suffered. He suffered. They could easily start to excuse Jesus' word to them and his way to them because he suffered. I mean, we can go straight to Deuteronomy. Cursed is every man who is hung in a tree. Well, goodness gracious, Jesus, why would we listen to him over angels? Angels are God's messengers. They're more important than this man who hung in a tree and died. Maybe we should reconsider this Jesus who suffered. And then, of course, having already let the cat out of the bag with this one, um, they were, to some degree, suffering themselves. If Jesus' way is so right, and I hear this question asked all the time in our contemporary culture, if Jesus is so right, if Jesus has got it going on, if Jesus knows how life is supposed to be lived, if Jesus' way is good, if Jesus is good, why? Why are we still living in a world so full of wrong? Why are our very lives oftentimes so filled full of wrong? Hmm. Maybe. That's part of it, maybe. It's interesting. Because part of what's going on in showing Jesus as superior to the angels is that the author is also pointing out that, well, Jesus is fully man, and there's a lot of mystery to embrace here. He is also so much more. He's fully God. 
when the author says his name is greater? There's a connection with what other New Testament writers such as the Apostle Paul are doing concerning the name of Jesus. In Philippians 2.10, Paul is transforming a text from Isaiah chapter 45.23. Stick with me on this. Paul is looking at a text in Isaiah 45.23 which says, At the name of Yahweh, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Yahweh is Lord. And it's exclusive. It's only at the name of Yahweh that the people of the earth are to bow their knee. It's at the name of Yahweh and the name of Yahweh alone that every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Yahweh is Lord. But in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul writes this. It's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Wow. Jesus, both in Hebrews and by Paul, is being intimately linked with Yahweh, the Creator, and the one true God. He is also being intimately connected with this one true God when it is said that He is worshipped by the angels. Worship is supposed to be something offered unto God alone. Worship the Lord. Jesus knows this, right? When He's being tempted in the wilderness to worship the enemy, He quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, which says, Worship the Lord Yahweh, your God, and serve Him only. When it is said that He is eternal, He is being put in the position of God as the hymn that draws on several Old Testament texts, attempts. Maybe this isn't quite a hymn. It's more of a worship song, more contemporary. We, we being you and I, created beings, are a moment. You, God, are forever. Lord of the ages, God, before time. We are a vapor. You are eternal. Love everlasting, reigning on high. Jesus is being intimately linked with Yahweh when it is said in comparison to the angels that He is eternal. And when it is said that the earth is His footstool, His ottoman, He is also being inseparably linked with God as this is God's position over the cosmos. All things under His feet belong to Him and the earth and all that is in it is the Lord Yahweh's. In each one of these situations, Jesus is put in the place of Yahweh. And I'll tell you right now, if He ain't, we should all be shuddering. Because we worship Him. It's texts like these that show us and teach us who Jesus is. Yeah, He's fully man, but He's so much more. He and Yahweh are one and the same. And honestly, anybody with even a cursory understanding of the Old Testament, which these late first, early second, maybe early third generation Christians would have, would have had, they would not have missed this connection. These connections. They wouldn't have missed them. They would have understood exactly what is going on concerning who Jesus is. So yes, Jesus is fully man. But He is also, as hard as it might be for us to wrap our minds around 
and how at times, honestly, we may be gone in an overarching or overbearing direction with this. Um, we can't get away from it. Jesus is incarnate God. Therefore, Jesus is as superior to the angels as the one who created them is superior to them. So pay attention. Be careful. Pay careful attention to what the Son has spoken. Don't believe for a second that angels' words have priority over Jesus' words just because Jesus was a man. You know, the early church struggled with this a lot. How could God possibly become incarnate? Not like how could it happen, but how could it be that this perfect, transcendent God would associate himself with us lowly people? If you're starting from a theology that has a pretty low view of creation, it's really hard to imagine how God would possibly associate himself so closely with people. But when we look through the scriptures, we see a God who closely associates himself. And we should not be so surprised that he would incarnate himself and that closely associate himself with us. This man, Jesus, is the one and only Son of God. The exact impress of God's being. God's invisible being made visible. Listen to Him. And as I talked about in week two, listening to Him has more to do, has as much to do with watching how He handles Himself as it does just listening to His words. And... <laughs> That's very true of all of us parents, too. <laughs> Our kids learn more about how they should act by how we act than by what we say. In the same way, Jesus teaches us a lot by what he does, not just by what he says. The incarnate living word embodies everything of God's way as the living word. It is to this one that all things are subject to. Everything. Everything. It's not angels that God has subjected the world. It's to the Son. Remember, everything is under His feet. The earth is His footstool. We are in that earth. There is nothing, including the angels, that is not subject to Him. He has authority over all. Everything. Kings, queens, presidents, dignitaries, leaders of all sorts, all people, birds, wild animals, tame animals, my pet dog porters, porter and dogs, porter and stout and Lucy, everything subject. Wind, fire, water, everything. Well, this is though where many people object. Wait a second! Wait a second! Is everything really under Jesus' feet? So, why is there suffering in the world? Why so much darkness? Why is the world in such disarray? 
One of the things that I love about the scriptures is that they're very, very real. It's not some kind of a prettying up of reality in the Word. Actually, if, it, if, if they were just prettying up of reality and we just kind of blindly went ahead and said, oh, yeah, everything's fine, it's good, it's fine, I wouldn't trust the Scriptures. You can find lots of religious writing that's not at all real with the world around us. But the writer of Hebrews certainly is real. He does not have in his head, have his head in the clouds. He's not a pretender. He names this seeming discontinuity. This everything is under Jesus' feet, but but at the present time, he says in verse 8, chapter 2, we do not see. We don't see everything subject to him. There is still suffering. There is still pain. There is still death, disease, famine, tornadoes, typhoons, tsunamis. There is still hate and murder and strife and suffering. For when everything is under his feet, those things are no more. Jesus, the Son, has conquered death, but that salvation, while it has been earned, is still becoming a reality. And if we don't have our eyes open to that, faith becomes extremely difficult. While we do not see everything yet subject to Him, we do see Jesus, the hope of glory. We see him. Why? Because he's been resurrected. We see Jesus, the resurrected son, the first fruits of the resurrection. Let him be a testimony to the experience of suffering in this not yet under his feet, but coming under his feet experience that you and I have. His suffering means our salvation. Think about that for a minute. His suffering means our salvation. He is crowned with glory and honor because of it. Because of his suffering, that is his death, he is crowned with glory and honor. And he has, as verse 9 puts it, tasted death for every one of us. It is to suffer that the Son became flesh. And through his suffering, Jesus, the author of our salvation, was made perfect. Seems weird to think of the Son being made perfect, but maybe a better way to understand the word is complete, whole. He has fulfilled what it looks like to be a truly impressed image of God in this world. Through suffering, that has happened. Not through conquering enemies, not in the way we think of conquering enemies, through death, through submitting himself to die, he has been crowned with glory and honor. That's the way the author of salvation has made salvation possible for us, is through death. He, through suffering, fully revealed God's character. His holiness revealed in suffering to take away our sin, that exact impress of God. Can God suffer?
I hear people ask a lot, if God is so real, why are so many people suffering? I have a friend of mine who is a self-professed atheist. I would actually call him an agnostic because he asks way too many angry questions about why there's no God to actually think there isn't a God. You ever know anybody like that? Like, man, they have God on their mind an awful lot for somebody that doesn't believe there is one. And he asks that question all the time. If there's this is hang up. Golly, if there's God, why all this suffering? Why is God just ignoring it? He's not. God's not ignoring suffering. He's not just, as the saying goes, allowing bad things to happen to good people. The gospel teaches us that He is a God who takes suffering upon Himself and offers a way through it. He is offering salvation from it. Listen, listen to this really close. He is offering salvation from death. He is offering salvation from suffering, overcoming the effects of sin, calling people to repent of the things that brought it in the first place. And along with Jesus, to endure suffering as a witness for that redemption. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Therefore we are of the same family, brothers and sisters, with Christ. Our suffering is not a reason to doubt the truth of the gospel then, but rather it is an honor like that of Jesus. The recipients of the letter should not be surprised to find themselves suffering for the sake of the gospel. They are brothers and sisters of the same family, born of suffering. They should not be surprised. They should find themselves honored for the sake of the gospel, and so should we. And that list of people that I talked about at the beginning, the 11, Polycarp, St uh, Stephen, they were. They were honored to die a death like Jesus died. Suffering is Jesus' path to glory. So too with us who are being conformed to the likeness of Son, the exact impress of God's being, our Lord Jesus. The path of Jesus is the way of the cross. The path we are called to as we are called daily to bear our crosses. The writer talks about how because of Jesus overcoming death and defeating Satan that we no longer are held captive by fear. We no longer are held captive by the fear of suffering. We are no longer held captive by the fear of death. Wow. I want to live into that. I wish I could say that I did talk like I do sometimes to myself and then every once in a while something happens that looks like I might die in a moment and my heart races real fast because I really am afraid to die. But I don't want to be afraid to die because I know I have hope bigger than death. 
Some people, when it comes to this suffering of Christians, will say, well, my Jesus came to take my suffering so that I would not have to suffer. <laughs> I know, right? They do. People do. Especially in, in this country. Jesus came to take my suffering so that I would not have to suffer. Or, I thought we were trying to eliminate suffering in the world, not embrace it. Hmm. So to those who say, my Jesus came to take my suffering so that I would not have to suffer, I believe the scriptures are saying, well, those who are his are being conformed to the likeness of the one who suffered. If you want to try and find some other way, apparently you're listening to some angelic voice, not Jesus. Because <laughs> his way is a way that embraces suffering. I don't know how we can get around that, right? We need to listen to the action of the incarnate word. The action that says to the one who says, let's not suffer, get behind me, Satan. Because that's the way of the enemy, not the way of Jesus. We, we have to learn to embrace that message of the gospel, which historically speaking and worldwidely, that's a word, speaking, is headed straight into suffering. You ever stop and think about, I mean, I know many of you have because we've talked about it before, but you ever stop and think about the fact that Jesus says, hey, come on, follow me to those 12. Come on, follow me. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Follow me. And everybody's like, yeah, whoo, let's do it. Yeah, we'll follow, we'll follow. Jesus the whole time knows where he's going, Right? Seems irresponsible. <laughs> You're going to die, man! Why didn't you tell us that to begin with? Why would you do such a thing? Jesus' way is a way that heads straight into suffering in the world as we know it. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. He rejoices <laughs> in suffering. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What? Fill up? Fill up what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? What? There can't be anything lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. That can't be right. But that's what it says. So what is that all about? He's talking about us participating in the sufferings of Christ as his body on the earth as we go into a world that does not want to hear the message of a king who loves. That's what Paul experienced. We fill up Christ's afflictions through the suffering we experience as Christ's ambassadors to a world that is hostile to Christ. So what about those who say, I thought we were trying to eliminate suffering in the world, not embrace it? This is complicated, but let me give it a little bit of a try, to a cursory answer at least. Yes, there is some truth to that, but we cannot have an over-realized eschatology. In other words, there is forces that oppose us. All things are not yet under Jesus' feet. We can't be thinking that everything that we do will not come with some element of suffering and persecution as there is someone or something pushing back against us. If we do 
we will honestly try to eliminate suffering and inflict suffering on others. We cannot place, for example, we cannot displace those in homes for the sake of housing the homeless. Jesus' way of alleviating others' suffering will likely call you, each one of you, to endure some suffering, to take some suffering upon yourself. The problem with suffering is bigger than what this world honestly can offer, which is not an excuse. We must pursue peace while pointing to our greater hope of peace. It's okay. You're you're just fine, sister. Yeah. Yeah. Stick around. You don't have to run off. You can stay. Maybe it couldn't have been said any better way than the problem with suffering is bigger than what this world can offer. To share in Jesus' suffering is part of what it means to be of the same family of Jesus. Part of what it means to be in Christ. To share in His suffering is ultimately to share in His glory. It is because of suffering that Jesus has come into this world to take it to task, to defeat it. 
but he defeats it by enduring it. He too shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who has the power of death. We should not be surprised when we suffer. We should not be surprised when other people suffer. We shouldn't be surprised when we have to suffer on other people's behalf for the sake of the gospel. As we wait for everything to be put under Jesus' feet and his world to be made right. For everything his hands have made to be restored. We shouldn't be surprised when we have to suffer while we wait. So is your life better for following Jesus? If so, how? Question I started this off with. Here's an additional part of that question. Does your answer account for suffering? Does it account for the suffering of others and does it account for the suffering, the redemptive suffering that you're called to? If it does not, it needs to be adjusted. And don't worry, I speak that to myself. Without adjustment, if it doesn't account for suffering in a Christ-like manner, you will never be all you could be for Jesus. Because you will avoid suffering, not realizing that God's purposes will call you into situations that will require it. You will have to set something that you could call a blessing aside for the sake of following Jesus. And learn to understand that suffering is a blessing. Setting aside your own wants and wishes and desires for the sake of somebody else. Something God is going to call you to. And it's true blessing. I, I hope that... I. If we don't account for the call of suffering and to follow Jesus into suffering, our message of Jesus will be distorted and not able to stand. If we don't have an ability to engage the world concerning suffering, if we don't learn to do that and to do that well, we will have many people, like my friend, the supposed atheist, who has no one to go to him and offer an answer, a perspective, a hope. We certainly must have a theology that allows us to understand and embrace suffering even while everything is being put on, under Jesus' feet, but while everything is not yet under his feet. Maybe, maybe to our entire question, my entire question, need some tweaking. Maybe, and I'm going to close with this, instead of asking, is my life better for the sake of following Jesus? Maybe we should ask, is my neighbor's life better for the sake of my following Jesus? Something to think about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that your gospel 
deals directly with pain and suffering in our world, that you have come, Lord Jesus, to overcome it, to bring us through it, but that we have to wait for it. That we have to allow ourselves the space and the place to enter into this way of suffering. That in the midst of that, we do find blessing. We do find hope. We do find joy. And we find an abundance of your presence. Heavenly Father, as, as we just consider the things that you've spoken to us tonight, I just ask that you would encourage each one of us, Heavenly Father, that you would give us eyes to see you, Lord Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. Praise you, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.